by the missionaries and what effect did that had on them. We got it going here? Okay. We're now starting. Okay, anything else? Isn't it interesting? I had, uh, this was, you know, one of these days I will, uh, when, I, when I accept speaking things, I ought to be looking at uh, kind of when I've accepted other speaking things. So this, so this was my weekend to stay busy. So I got the, uh, the single adults in the afternoon, the older single adults on Saturday evening, and 40 uh, fireside on Sunday night. So I've been, it's been kind of a fun weekend. Uh, but I was really touched by uh, the young single adults that we talked to on uh, Saturday afternoon. Just kind of bright and excited and filled with the Spirit and you just kind of watch. And I'm watching them as like, okay, the church is in good hands. Here's the next generation. Here they come. They're already gaining, learning, uh, tears in their eyes, ready to make commitments and move forward. And just kind of, kind of uh, a little reassuring. For me, sometimes you wonder if like heads have fallen off of shoulders and just brains are gone. Great kids, great, great kids. So, all right. Anything else? Good stuff. Well, again, we are down to just a, a few weeks. We've got uh, uh, we're going to talk about the martyrdom today, uh, and then next week will be uh, uh, the uh, westward trek, uh, Brigham Young. Uh, section 136, and then we'll do the redemptions of the dead, 137, 138, and then we will do the buffet and the oral final, and we'll, we'll about be done. So, good to have you here. Now, as we, as we talk today, um, I apologize at the beginning that one of the things that I try very carefully to do is make sure that no matter what we're studying in terms of history, that there is application, there is stuff that we should be able to take home and do this week. We should be able to do it this afternoon. Uh, this is going to be a little heavier on the history side than, than normal, and there's just because there's no other way to do this. And I also think it's good for us to have a good knowledge of the historical events about what happened, because it sets the pace for everything else uh, that happens in the church, and it explains a lot about what we do going forward. Okay. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to start. This is a uh, this is a quote from Joseph Smith that he gave to uh, uh, a, a lady who kept an, kept an incredible uh, journal, Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner. Uh, a lot of what we have in ter- terms of some personal glimpses into the life of Prophet Joseph Smith came from Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner. She ultimately would be a a uh, plural wife of his. Uh, but she she has a, she uh, took very careful notes of things that she heard the prophet saying and doing, and 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 he said something to her that we will hear echoed in just a second when we look at the King Follett discourse. Uh, he said it first privately, I think, to her, and then he said it publicly to the saints there on April seventh, eighteen forty-four. Here's what he said, and it gives you some sense. This comes in spring 1844. He's weeks away from his martyrdom. And he says this. I'm tired. I've been mobbed. I've suffered so much. Some of the brethren think I can carry this. They can carry this work out better than I can. Far better. I've asked the Lord to take me out of this world. I have stood all I can. 
I have to seal my testimony to this generation with my blood. I have to do it. For this work will never progress until I'm gone. For the testimony is of no force until the testator is dead. And then this, this phrase he will then repeat in King Follow Discourse. People little know who I am when they talk about me. And they, and they never will know until they see me weighed in the balance in the kingdom of God. Then they will know who I am. See me as I am. I dare not tell them. They do not know. There was in his final weeks a growing, uh, I think, a pain in Joseph. Uh, I think I, I parallel this a little bit to Moses, who is. You know, for everything that he tried to do for the children of Israel, they just kind of kept complaining and they kept missing over everything. And I think Joseph began to feel that. Uh, as we're going to talk about in a second, there's a conspiracy that begins. There's a second church that starts, the uh, Reformed Church of Jesus Christ, uh, led by the apostates. Uh, they will have as many as 300 at some of their meetings. Uh, and a growing sense that he has fallen as a prophet. And I think there was a part of him that was fearful about what this would mean in terms of the saints being able to stay in Nauvoo and the persecution they were now going to bring on their heads. But I also think at a very personal level, this cut deeply. You know, that, that's why you get that private remembrance of Joseph on the west side of the Mississippi when he's on his way to the Rocky Mountains and word comes, you're leaving us. And he, and he will turn to Hiram and to Porter Rockwell and say, my life is of no value to my friends. It's of no value. And I think there is this growing, get this growing sense in him. March, April, May, a growing sense of uh, gloom on his part, um, as we'll talk about. <clears throat> All right. Let's uh, ahead of this. Then let's let's pop over to the King Follett discourse. Um, <clears throat> April conference, eighteen forty-four. Uh, <coughs> April. Uh, they, they meet on April sixth. Uh, they're going to meet in a grove just uh, it's just east of where the temple now sits. There was a number of groves. There was one on the on the west side between the temple and temple site and the river that they would meet in frequently. There was a bigger one on the uh, on the west side, and then also some of the sermons were done in the old burial ground at the top of Parley Street. This particular one, the King Follett discourse, was given at. Uh, at the, the west grove, west of, west of, or east of the temple, just off of Mulholland, uh, and they needed that bigger space because at this point they knew the prophet was going to speak, uh, and 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 there was somewhere just north of twenty thousand people at this. Uh, there was a rainstorm in progress. Uh, there was it, while it did rain some, and the wind kept kicking up. During this discourse, most of the storm kind of split and went around them for the 
to the time that it took to do this. But it was enough that Joseph had to speak loudly over the, over the blowing wind so that 20,000 people could hear in a, in a windstorm. Uh, we are fortunate in the fact that there were four scribes uh, riding furiously. Uh, one of them, uh, on his, he said on his top hat, he had a notepad, and he was doing shorthand on, a, on his top hat, furiously writing. Uh, what I sent you was the amalgamated King Follett Discourse. We brought the four sources together. Uh, uh, BYU scholar did in 1978 to give, us, uh, to give us the full version of what was said and make sure everything jived. Why is this so important? This talk is his apex. If you want to talk the absolute climax of everything he taught, it's contained in the King Follett Discourse. Um, it has been debated for years because some of it was so stark and there were elements of it, as we'll talk about in a second, with the Nauvoo Expositor that resulted in his death. And I'm not going to, we don't have time to go through all of it, but we'll go through, let's just go through just a little bit for just a second if we can. Um, what are we doing? Okay. This would actually be, this is like by about the second or third page. And I apologize, I didn't have, a, have the ability with this version of PDF to be able to highlight it so you can see easier. So I apologize for that. But I want you to hear two things. One, the topic that he's chosen, and number two, the feeling behind it his personal feelings, why it is he chose to speak on the King Follett Discourse, which is the nature of God. He's going to say, the Apostle says that this is eternal life. Gosh. I don't know. I guess it's possible. What's that? Possible. Think maybe it's too hot. The apostle says that it's eternal life to know the only wise God and Jesus Christ, who He Himself. This is eternal life. If any man inquire, what kind of being is God? If he will cast his mind to know and search diligently his own heart, if the declaration of the apostle be true, he will realize that unless he knows God, he has not eternal life. For there cannot be eternal life on no other principle. So it is the first nature for us to be able to know the true God. Okay? So now, listen to what he says. I want you to hear what he's talking about. And I want you to hear the sentiment behind it. My first object is to go back and find the character of the only wise and true God. And what kind of being he is. So he's going to do that. But now listen to the sentiment. If I should be the man so fortunate as to comprehend God and explain it to your hearts, what kind of being God is, so that the Spirit seals it, then listen to the sentiment. Then let every man and woman henceforth put his hand on his mouth, sit in silence, and never say anything more to lift his voice against the servants of God again. I'm tired. 
If I fail to do this, I have no right to revelation and inspiration. It becomes my duty to renounce all of my pretensions to inspiration or to being a prophet. In other words, if my job is as a prophet of God to preach God to you, and I'm doing it falsely, kill me. But if I'm doing it correctly, shut up. <laughs> Basically. Quit attacking me for trying to give you the true view of who God is. If I fail to do it, I have no right to revelation and inspiration. Uh, look at the bottom of that paragraph. If any man is authorized to take away my life, who says I'm a false teacher, then upon the same principle I should have the same right to take the life of all false teachers. And, and, and who would then not be the sufferer? There would be no end of blood. But then he says, but meddle not with any man for his religion, for no man is authorized to take away any life in consequence of religion. Why is he talking about this? It's coming, it's coming and he knows it. And it's coming closer and he knows it. This is a prophet. He knows what's about to befall him. Then listen to that. Look at this next line here. I am going to inquire after God because I want you all to know God and to be familiar with Him. If I can get you to know Him, I can bring you to Him. And if so, all persecution against me will cease. This will let you know that I am his servant, for I speak as one having an authority and not a scribe. I am who I say I am. God is who, I, who I'm telling you. And the funny thing is, he says, I'm trying to explain God to you. And we go back to a 14-year-old boy in a grove. What did he know? The nature of God and who he was. In the first 30 seconds of that vision in 1820, he knew more about God than all of the preachers on the entire earth. And he knew it immediately. And he'd always known this. But there are things about this eternal God that he would not reveal to the King Follett discourse. And I believe that he had known all along that if I begin to preach this, it will result in my death. So the fact that my death is pending, I have nothing to lose. Let me finally put it on record what I know about this wonderful eternal God. What kind of being was God in the beginning before the world was? I will take I will go back to the beginning to show you. I will tell you. So open your ears and eyes, all ye ends of the earth, and hear, for I'm going to prove it with the Bible. I'm going to tell you the designs of God for the human race, the relation of the human family sustained with God, and why He interferes in the affairs of man. Now, here comes the first truth then. First, God Himself who sits enthroned in yonder heavens is a man, like unto one of yourselves. That is the great. If the veil were rent today, the great God who holds this world in His sphere and the planets in their orbit and upholds all things by His power, if you were to see Him today, you would see Him in all the person, image, fashion, very form of a man like unto yourself. For Adam was a man 
formed in his likeness and created in the very fashion and image of God. God received instruction, walked, talked, and conversed with him as one man talks and communicates with him. Now, there, there are those of our Christian brothers and sisters who struggle with this concept of trying to say, by trying to make God a man, you are bringing God down, right? You're taking something away from Him. How would you answer that? It's bringing us up. Because He's still saying, this is the same God that Isaiah talks about that sits on the, on the, uh, on the curve of the earth, and he holds the planets in his hand. You know, in the mountains he weighs in the balance. This is that same eternal God who fills the essence of space. Not one thing has changed about this eternal God. He is everything that we believe that he is. But, in this one swath, he's saying, if this is God, and he is a man just like you, and he went through his own experiences to become God, that doesn't take one thing about away from God, but it does what? It elevates who we are. We're not just mere animals. We're not just struggling along. We have the capacity to become like Him. We are far more noble than we have any idea. The idea of becoming kings and queens, priests and priestesses in the most in the kingdom of the Most High is very relevant. That's why he's going to quote from the Savior saying he sought, he sought not a uh, sin to, be, to see himself equal. That all of us can become joint heirs. Well, what is an heir? Entitled to everything that God has. The king of the mansion is going to heir everything to his children. They end up with the mansion. And he's going to say, I will prove it to you. And it's one of those doctrines that was there, but when it's taught, it sounded like blasphemy. Now, let me ask you, why would anybody argue? And he's going to say, why would anybody argue with this? Why would they kill me for this? Why would anybody argue with this? No. Because it shifts the kids to be It is such a completely different jump. That's that paradigm, whatever that thing is, it shifted. And suddenly the whole world is different. And you start taking a look at this. Um, and then he's going to go, uh, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I need you to see. Uh, I need you to see this, and that's why I send it to you. I believe you ought to read through the King Follett discourse on your own. Get a chance to read the Magnificent. It is Joseph at his finest. It is Joseph in his most rhetorical. I mean, at times he's like reading from the German, he's reading from the Greek, and he'll read from the German, and then he'll say to the, to the German saints, Am I getting it right? And they'll call out, I, you are, okay, you know, and, you know, and he's doing, and he's got this back and forth thing going. He held those 20,000 in his hand. This great prophet, who most of his life had had spokespeople talking for him. This was his full essence of the prophet. 
weeks before he dies. Who is King Follett? Ah, we have to talk about King Follett. King Follett was a good friend of his who was digging a well there in Nauvoo, and in the process of doing that, part of the well caves in and crushes him. So there, this, is, this is general conference, but they're also going to uh, do this at his funeral. So that's why it's called the King Follett Discourse. The, it's the, it was a funeral speech at King Follett, because he's now going to talk about uh, consoling... Uh, in order to understand the subject to the dead and the consolation of those who mourn for the loss of their friends, he says, I want you to know where they've gone and the God to whom they're going to. Because it is the place that we will all go to. First name was King, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a title that we know of. I want you to know the first principles of consolation, now consoling to the mourners. They're called for a husband... Father, wife, child, dear relative, or friend, to know that they lay down this body and all earthly tabernacles are dissolved. Their very being shall rise in the immortal. Uh, and, and he'll kind of, like I say, he's going to go through this. Um, it is interesting. Uh, I will point this out and then we will kind of move on from here. He goes to the first word in, in, uh, of the Bible that says, In the beginning... What? Was it? No. Genesis 1. God created the world. Okay? Now the word there is Elohim. And he just quietly points out, and, and anybody who's ever studied Hebrew a little bit knows that Him is a plural. Uh, it's, it's plural. So when he's talking about Elohim, he's talking about El, God, Elohim, gods. And he says, and, and that's the way that's the way it was, Elohim, and he says, and some old Jew looked at that and said, that doesn't make any sense, and translated it as God. And then he's going to take Bethel Sheep, which is, is uh, created, and he says, that doesn't mean out of thin cloth, Belosheet is organized. And he's going to say, and so that's what he said, the first part of that, the head one of the gods brought forth the gods, uh, and he's going to walk through that, that process. Okay? So I would imagine that, that 20,000 is sitting there going, whoa! <laughs> you know, it's just, and this is enough that he will talk the next day also on the plurality of gods. He didn't think he would have enough breath left over. Uh, but he did really well. Okay. Now, I want you to... Uh, there's one last thing that I will... Oh, he'll, he's going to talk in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and German. I want to, I want to jump right down to the bottom before we finish with King Follett. Just because there is... Here it is. Here's the part that you have heard, and it comes from the King Follett Discourse. And, it, it, and it's just beautiful in its simplicity. You don't know me. You never will. You never knew my heart. No man knows my history. 
I cannot do it. I shall never undertake it. I don't blame you. I love this. I don't blame you for not believing my history. If I had not experienced what I have, I would not believe it myself. I never did harm to any man since I have been born in the world. My voice is always for peace. I cannot lie down until my work is finished. I never think evil nor think anything to the harm of any of my fellow men. When I am called at the trump of God and weighed in the balance, you will all know me. There is mystery and intrigue with that statement. What does he mean? Will we understand completely the power of him? Will we understand that in the pre existence he was far greater than we knew? We don't know. But you don't know him. No man knows my history. I cannot tell about you. That's why Brigham... Huh? Don't know. He didn't tell me either. Brigham Young just said, I shout hallelujah every time I think that I knew Joseph Smith. All right. No. Wouldn't even dare do it. Publicly. Okay, so let's let's look at let's look now at the history. As we come into this last few months. Because there there are there are um, a number of elements that now come together that set up kind of a perfect storm. First of all is the presidential race and the campaign. It's it's uh, election year 1844. They will send off about 20 letters to potential candidates trying to say, what do you, how do you handle the Mormons? How do you handle the religion and the freedom of religion and all that? Most won't answer. Uh, and, and some will write back and say, it's a state's issue, it's not a federal issue. Can't do anything for you. Uh, Abraham Lincoln included. Can't do, can't do a whole lot for you. Um, so what they will do instead in one of their meetings uh, they will organize what was called the Council of 50 and this was to be able to present the best foot forward to the world and it was made up of members and non-members and the Council of 50 uh, then nominated Joseph Smith to be their presidential candidate Joseph then wrote up a uh, campaign series of planks of campaign uh, and gave it to the, the apostles to now take forward and now go out to the east especially to present the Joseph Smith uh, presidential campaign. Some of those are intriguing ideas. He believed, for instance, that we ought to annex Mexico and Canada. He believed that we should uh, we solve the slave question by selling all public lands. 
uh, taking that money and paying the slave owners for their slaves and freeing the slaves by paying the slave owners off. Solved. Done. And yeah. See, the slave owners were always saying, this is our property. Okay, great. We'll pay you for it, and then we'll free the slaves that way. Okay? Number of, and there's a little booklet you can still find sitting out there that talks about his, his view of government. He believed that, this is perfect on tax day, I guess. He believed that politicians should be paid no more than farmers. That it should be a citizen uh, legislature. Very temporary, and that they should be paid very minimally. Otherwise, they'll be tempted to stay. <laughs> what a silly idea. I know, he was a prophet. Okay. So on one level, this makes sense. On the other level, there was some jealousy among the uh, Whigs, the political party in there, that believed that Joseph was going to support all of the Whigs. And in turn, they were looking at the, the opposition party. They knew the Mormons would vote as a bloc. So there were members of the Whigs that began to be stirred up by the possibility of a Joseph Smith candidacy. Among those, we'll talk about him in a second, would be Thomas Sharp uh, in, in uh, Warsaw. Uh, we'll take over the, uh, the Warsaw Sentinel. No, I've not changed it from the Sentinel to... No, I'll show you the expositor of the Anyway, he's going to take that, and that's going to be his blasting point. He's one of the prime, prime movers and shakers of the, uh, of the uh, martyrdom. Tom Sharp is one of the main conspirators. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Okay, a little unclear on this Council Yes. What was their objective? A number of things. Number one, the Council of 50 was to help in the campaign. Campaign of Uh huh. The other thing, too, is that there was a belief that the second coming was coming quickly. And that when the second coming came, this Council of 50 was to be the, the first presiding legislature of the new world order and the millennium. So it was also to be a political body. That's why Mormons, non-Mormons were in this. Okay? Now... But it was also waiting for the second coming. One of the fears, and you'll and you'll hear it in the in the Nauvoo Expositor, was that Joseph was making himself a king and was ready to take over. And, the, and then it's been misunderstood. The Council of Fifty was not to be a take over the world thing. It was wait for the second coming, and then the Council of Fifty would then be a presiding body for New Jerusalem. Okay. All right, so we get that going. So there was some fear about what it was that Joseph was about to do. Also some fear in Missouri that if he becomes president of the country, uh, we're toast. <laughs> you know, Boggs wouldn't be very excited about having uh, President Joseph Smith now ready to come back to the landowners in Jackson County and Caldwell County around far west and actually take the land back. So there was some fear at those levels. That's why there were Missourians in the mob that had been brought in by Thomas Sharp to help with the murder. Okay. Yeah. Yes, he was the he was the president of the council under his direction. Did he found it? Yes. Yep. 
there was a pending gloom beginning to settle on Joseph. Uh, I don't know how much of this that the saints caught, caught, but when he sent the twelve out to campaign, I believe he did it for two reasons. One, we need to go ahead and carry out. Joseph never went actively went out and campaigned for the presidency. But the brethren did for him in New York and Boston and Philadelphia. But he all, I also believe that Joseph as a prophet knew what was coming. And a little bit like the Savior who will stay, who will say to Peter, you must deny me three times. I need to get you distant here. There will be a spirit of bloodletting and Peter, I need you gone. Otherwise, you're impulsive enough to stick yourself in the middle of my flogging and get yourself killed. I think in that same way that he needed Peter distant, he needed Brigham Young distant, he needed John Taylor distant, he needed them out of Carthage and Nauvoo. So he sent them on this campaign. And it was Heber C. Kimball who talked about the fact, or no, Wilford Woodruff, Wilford Woodruff, who said that when I got ready to leave for the East, Joseph held me tight and looked at it and said, I had a feeling at that moment this would be the last time I would see Joseph was clearing the day to get these brethren out of there so that they could come back and take them. So there was a sense of gloom. There is that other moment with the... Um, in March, early March, he brings in the twelve and he reteaches everything. Everything. Everything goes back every over in doctrine and every principle. Over and over and over. And, and John Taylor would say, uh, went over and over, and then the, and then Joseph turned to him and said, Now, brethren, I have rolled the kingdom off of my shoulders. Onto yours, you are responsible to move forward. If you do not do it, you will be dead. And now I am as likely to die as I go to my house. Yeah, teach. Teach. Reteach. Yeah, I need you to know that you know this. I need to go, I need every principle can repeat it back to me, teach it. And there was a sense of urgency there with him. And he knew this was coming. So I think there was a pending gloom. There was also a gloom in the fact that uh, non-Mormon persecutions were starting. Uh, the city of uh, Yerlum, again we talked about it, that was Isaac Morley and the Colesville Saints that had ended up in Yerlum. Uh, about 20 miles down the road had had their, their crops burned and they were coming into Nauvoo. Nauvoo was becoming an armed camp. By the way, it's kind of fun if you're driving between Nauvoo and you go down uh, down towards Quincy, you can turn off, there's, a, there's still a sign there for Yearland. And you can see some of the footings of the city of Yearland. They just took morning and turned the wood back. It's where, it's where Eliza Snow stands. Her last few months in in, in Illinois. Okay, so there's a, there's a growing pending gloom that's beginning to settle. There are excommunications when Joseph announced the the uh, uh, doctrine of plural marriage. It is true that William Law, his first first counselor or second counselor in the first presidency, with tears in his eyes. 
how David said, don't do this. Don't, re- don't announce this doctrine. And Joseph said, I announced it. Or I will die. Uh, William Law is one of those then that was one of the first then to leave, uh, to begin to be angered by this, allow this to canker. Uh, he and his brother Wilson Law, uh, a growing sense, and then because they are now preaching against it, Joseph will then uh, almost excommunicate them. They will repent, then they will keep preaching. He will then completely excommunicate them, and that's at that point that the laws will then form together with uh, uh, John Johnson, Joseph Johnson, who was after Hiram's daughter, and Hiram said, "No, you're kind of a scum." And the Higby brothers, who were uh, the the uh, the sons of one of uh, Elias Higby's, Elias Higby was one of Joseph's closest friends in New York. The Laws and the Higby's. They will be excommunicated, and they will then begin to be in secret. And they will begin to form uh, a pact to then kill the prophet Joseph. They will meet in the basement of William Law's brand new brick house. It's just a few, just a few strips. If you go, if you're in Nauvoo, if you just go farther down from the Mansion House, Red Brick Store, where the uh, Times and Seasons was, it's just like one more street down. This is where William Law. Okay. Um, and this is where we get the great story that I've told before, and I'm going to take just a, a, a second to tell it again for some of you. I think it's good to remind ourselves. This is where they begin the conspiracy. And this is where we get to know the, the two heroes. Dennis and Harris, Robert Scott. Robert Scott is a uh, kind of an orphaned boy. Um, when the, when the conspirators would continue to meet, Sister Law got really tired of uh, the, the spitting and chewing and the dirt and the noise and everything, stirring up everything in the house. And she says, i got to have some help. So they bring in this orphan boy, Robert Scott, who uh, and then they're going to, and he's about 17, and he's to help out Sister Law. But he also becomes aware of what's being said by the conspirators that they are going to bathe their hands in the blood of Joseph Smith. He gets kind of scared, so he grabs his friend, Dennison Harris. Dennison Harris is the nephew of Martin Harris. Martin Harris's brother's son. Dennison Harris will then go to him, and they will the conspirators become aware of these two boys. Dennison Harris, Robert Scott. And they and they and they let them know what they're doing and they want them to join. Well, the first thing that these two boys will do is head right back up the street, knock on the door of the mansion house and say, Joseph, can we talk to you? Dennison will have his dad with him and they will sit and talk to Joseph. And, and Joseph has become alarmed by what it is that's going on and he wants them basically to act as spies. To go back to that meeting. They go to two meetings... Then there's coming a third meeting. And I want you to hear by their report 
Here's what Dennis and Harris reported. This is, this is prior to the last meeting. The third meeting. Joseph gathers them in some bushes before they're going to go down to William Law's house. And he says to them, this will be the, your last meeting. This will be the last time they will admit you into their councils. They will come with, to some determination. But be sure, he continued, that you make no covenants nor enter into any obligations, whatever with them. You just picture these two 17-year-old boys. Be strictly reserved. Make no promises either to conspire against me or any portion, any portion of the community. Be silent and do not take any part in their deliberations. And then these words. And picture it to some of the priests or if you have sons that are this age. Here's what, here's what the prophet told them. After a pause of some moments, he said, Boys, this will be their last meeting and they may shed your blood. I hardly think they will, as you're so young. If they do, I will be a lion in the world. Don't flinch. And then these words. If you have to die, die like men. <clears throat> you will be martyrs to the cause, and your crowns can be no greater, he said, but I hardly <clears throat> think they will shed. Your blood. There's no guarantee, brethren, that you won't be killed. And as it turned out, they almost were. They then go down the street to attend the meeting. They refuse to participate. The brethren become alarmed that they won't participate in the blood oaths that they are now administering to kill the prophet. When it becomes apparent that these two boys will not bend, they take them to the basement to kill them. Dead men tell no tales. In the midst of trying to decide if they're going to kill them and how, somebody mentions something about Denison's father. And Denison will reply, my dad knows where I'm at tonight. So if, in other words, if they don't come back, they're going to know something happened at the law house. So then the determination is made. We will take them to the Mississippi and we will make catfish meat of them. In other words, we must we will kill them, chop them into pieces, and throw them out into the Mississippi as catfish meat. Susan Easton Black says they are then marched out to the river, and again, it's just it's like 50 yards from the house, just down the street and right to the Mississippi. As it turns out, there's a couple, Spoony, Mooney, whatever you want to call them, they were having a romantic evening by the Mississippi. Here comes this group, leading these two boys, and, and the couple turns and goes, Prison Law, what are you doing out here? <laughs> oh, nothing. And the boys choose that as their moment to escape. They will escape. They'll go back to where Joseph is waiting for them in the bushes. They will say, here, here's what happened. Joseph is in tears when he hears the full extent of everything that's planning in this the narrow escape that these boys just went through. Then he will say this, boys, 
I am going away. You will not see me for many years. And he makes an interesting statement at that point. Joseph, almost speaking to himself, says, this is about plural marriage. If I had failed to live it, an angel would have killed me. If I pronounced it, they would kill me. There's nowhere to go here. Then he'll turn to Denison and and say to them, you must leave town tonight. Cross the river. Wait five years. There you will see wagon trains heading west. Grab one of those wagon trains. But never speak of what you have just witnessed. Don't know don't speak that you know me and keep it secret. Twenty years. Don't tell anybody for twenty years. Uh, Denison went over to Keokuk, uh, was there. Five years later, here come the wagon trains. He will, he will hop on one of those. He will, he will go to Utah. Um, Robert Scott will die. I don't remember how he died, but he dies just a few years later. Denison Harris will go out. And, and there was a tradition during this time when uh, on fast and testimony meeting was on Thursdays. The first few minutes of a fast and testimony meeting in Utah would be the, those who knew the Prophet Joseph Smith personally. They would bear testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Denison Harris sat on his hands and said nothing for 20 years. After 20 years, Joseph F. Smith happens to be in town. And at the 20-year mark, he says, President Smith is in the first presidency. i got something to talk about. Let me tell you what really happened. 20 years. And for the first time, that this story will be known. Because he will now, now he's a popular speaker. People want to know what happened to the conspiracy. This is actually him as, he's now Bishop Dennison Harris in uh, Monroe, Utah. And he, yeah, yeah, died in 1885. Okay, so in my mind, incredible, uh, willing to die. Lots to put on boys. But Joseph now knew what the conspiracy was like and, and what kind of to expect. Um, now, now at this point, the, the guys, will, the, the conspirators, conspirators, uh, with a little, uh, this is the Warsaw City. From Thomas Sharp, who's in Warsaw, um, they will then go out and get a press and they're going to form the, uh, and they're going to write a newspaper called the Nauvoo Expository. <laughs> this, is, this is where it is. By the way, if you've been to Nauvoo lately, if you're going up Mulholland Street, it's about a third of the way up the street on the left-hand side, and there's an awning. It's like a, last time I was there, was like a green awning out over the street. That's where the Nauvoo Expository was. They printed one newspaper, the Nauvoo Expository. That's popular. Okay, 
and it, it included seven uh, lectures against the prophet Joseph Smith, particularly having to do with uh, two things. Well, three things that they found most abominable. Plural marriage, spiritual wivery, plurality of gods, and that they were trying to make Joseph into a king. Council of 50. Okay. So let me hand out the, uh, take a look at the novel expository. Uh, by the way, while I'm doing that, let me hand out a couple of others to give you kind of a, a sense. This is uh, the Nauvoo Neighbor. By the way, if you ever want copies of these, if, when you go to Carthage, cross the street. There's a, there's a museum there, a county museum, and they carry copies of the Nauvoo Expositor. The Nauvoo Neighbor, 1845. They're still in Nauvoo. You can, you can get a chance to read kind of what was being said there. Neighbor. Also have a copy of pass this around. Paper from, from Quincy, Illinois, nineteen twenty eight, where they finally find the, the bones of Joseph and Highland. Buried under the pump house uh, just west of the mansion. Okay. You can kind of read about that and the fact that uh, the church, the church, meaning the reorganized church, denies polygamy was originated by the prophet Joseph Smith. It was a Brigham Young kind of Okay, so I'll hand that out. And then let me hand out one last thing. Um, I've got some pictures here of, some very old pictures of Mulholland Street, of the Carthage Jail. Uh, you get a chance to see kind of originally what some of those looked like before the church bought it and restored it back to, to what it was. Okay. All right. So the Nauvoo Expositor comes out and it is a flaming attack on the Prophet Joseph. Uh, it calls him worse than Caligula and, and uh, the vilest sort of human being and it goes on and on. Um, the, the prophet will take uh, sees a bit of a vision of this says if, this, if the Nauvoo Expositor gets to another printing it will continue to raise the, the, the uh, countryside against us so, so they will make a decision by now he's the mayor when uh, John C. Bennett was excommunicated John C. Bennett became one of the um, conspirators Joseph took over as mayor of Nauvoo, and they held a meeting. They met for two days and decided that the Nauvoo Expository should be destroyed. So there is a, an order given to uh, the, the sheriff, uh, Green, to go destroy the Nauvoo Expository. So they will go up and they will, uh, they will uh, throw all of the things, similar to what was happening to our press in Independence, Missouri. They take the press, they throw it out in the middle of the street, along with what they call the furniture, which was the little wooden pieces that would slide into the metal plates and everything, and they burned them in the middle of Mulholland Street. Okay? Now, Dallin Oaks, before he became a, an apostle, he was, he was a uh, Supreme Court Justice in the state of Utah, wrote an expose and said that according to the laws of this city, it was perfectly justified for the Nauvoo 
counsel to destroy this prince. But it was also the final match that lit the bonfire for Joseph. Because that was the final piece that inflamed the countryside. Is the novel responsible? Well, a quote from there, one of the blackest, basest scoundrels that has ever appeared upon the stage of human existence. Support not a man who is spreading death, devastation, and ruin through your happy country like a tornado. Base seducer, liar, and perjured representative, many of the most dark and damnable crimes, speaking of Joseph, that have ever darkened human character are now reduced to inspiration. Indisputable facts. Our blood boils while we refer to these bloodthirsty and murdering propensities of man, or rather demons in human shape, who not satisfied with practicing their dupes upon a credulous and superstitious people must wreak their vengeance upon any who dare come in contact with them. Okay. And again, uh, if you look at... Who's got the expository? Okay. If you look, right in the corner it says who the, who the publishers are. Uh, yeah, why don't you read out the publishers? Because here's, here are their conspirators for the, for the martyr. William Law, Wilson Law, yeah. Charles Ivins, yes. Francis Higby, John yeah. C. Higby, Robert Foster, and Charles Foster. Yeah, the Fosters, the Higbys, and the Laws. Yeah. They they what they were doing it kind of however they were. You you see all these different variations. But now we spell it in small D. Yeah, we do. Back now then. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it's just amazing what they were doing back then. Okay. So let's get to the kind of the final the final points here. You're aware that finally uh, uh, Governor Ford will, uh, now he's upset that the, the Mormons are not only out of control here, they're burning all kinds of things, but now they're destroying presses. So he will now come to Carthage. He will send message to Joseph. Why don't you meet me here and let's see if we can't resolve this. Joseph is sending messages back. Ain't no way. Carthage is an armed camp. I won't come out of Carthage alive. Uh, he says, you need to come. You've got to come. He tries to set the representatives. That, is, that still isn't solving it. And so Joseph will then uh, turn to Hiram and says, I know what we will do. We will go to the Rocky Mountains. And there is a moment just a few weeks before where he's over in Montrose on the other side of the river. And one of the brethren, and he's tired from rowing across the river. And one of the brethren will give him some ice-cold water from a barrel to quench his thirst. And Joseph will taste the water, and then he goes, Oh, that's really good. It's just like the mountain streams in the Rocky Mountain. It tastes just like this. Isn't that fascinating? So Joseph began to make arrangements. He and Hiram were going to go west. Uh, the maid of Iowa, the... Uh, the boat was to come and dock by the mansion or by the uh, Nauvoo house. Emma was to load all of her stuff on there. Was to then go up closer to Wisconsin and then come and meet them a little bit later. Okay. As soon as the word gets out, uh, there are there are several brethren 
that then become worried along with Emma that he's leaving. They will then be on the on the they will then travel across over to Montrose. The brethren will be sent out to say, We're a little afraid that you're leaving us. Emma wants you to come back. We want you to come back. And Joseph will turn to uh, Porter Rockwell and say, What should we do? And he'll say, You're the oldest. You, you, you know best. He'll turn to Hiram. What should we do? Hiram says, I think we should go back. We'll be fine. We've always been fine. Joseph says, I will go back, but we will be slaughtered by the ship. They will go back. They send now word to uh, Governor Ford that they're coming to Carthage. Uh, they will then get up that next morning. There will be lots of tears. They will ride to Carthage. Uh, and they're almost to Carthage when, when Governor Ford has issued a... Governor Ford knows what's coming. He's part of this. And he, and he sends an order that the Nauvoo Legion, which had a number of guns, state-issued guns, that the Nauvoo Legion needs to be uh, disarmed. Just in case. And Joseph is the commanding general. So they have to, they're almost to Carthage. They turn around and ride all the way back to Nauvoo. They sign the order to, to defang, if you will, the, uh, the Nauvoo Legion. Uh, they then confiscate all of their guns. And then Joseph then rides back to Carthage. And he will arrive there. Uh, they will have some meetings. They'll stay in the Hamilton Hotel. It's fascinating. Hamilton Hotel is no longer there. It was just a block and a half down and over from where the jail is. Uh, and they will take out a writ of habeas corpus saying, uh, we have a right to be judged, but we don't want to be held in jail. So Governor Ford is about to release them when Wilson Law, one of the conspirators, raises another objection and he says, you know, the, uh, the, the destroying of the expositor was a treasonable offense. And he must be held for treason. Interesting. Anybody else you know that was held for treason? Let's see. And there's no writ of habeas corpus for treason against the state. Over the other day, we yelled at the press. Yeah, we would. And they were. That's why it was treason. We were going against the Constitution, basically, even though it happened to us in Independence. Joseph supported. Yeah. So that means that now he will be held in the jail overnight. Okay. So now we're in uh, June 26. So they're going to stay in the jail. Oh, and I haven't got a picture of it. At the bottom of the stairs, and you come around the corner, is what they call the debtor's prison. The first night they will stay in the debtor's prison. All of the brethren that were supposedly responsible for the destroying of the expository. Okay. Upstairs, there was a small uh, jail cell. And then the, uh, uh, the Stigall, Mr. Stigall, the jailer, had his bedroom up there. Okay. So, when it, so the next morning dawns, June 27th. Governor Ford says, I'm off to Nauvoo. Joseph said, you said you would stay. No, you'll be fine. You'll be safe. 
I'm taking most of taking a big group with me. I'll leave you in the hands of the Carthage Grays. All great. Carthage Grays are the ones that were have been organized by Thomas Sharp and everybody to, to carry out. And the Missourians had already crossed the river and, and they had this group. They're also being stirred up by uh, William Law was not probably at the martyrdom, but Wilson Law was. We, we know that he was. So that group is waiting just out there, and then, and then we, we kind of know this story fairly well at that point. And uh, close to, uh, they will spend the day. Um, you can almost kind of see it. If you look on the, uh, the outer edge of the door leading into the Carthage uh, upstairs, you can see kind of a jagged edge on that. That's because the, the door, it's very humid. If you've been in Nauvoo in June, July, it's really humid. Well, the, the latch wasn't working very well. The door was swelling. They spent most of their day taking turns with a pocket knife trying to shave the edge of the door so it would finally shut. And they couldn't get it to shut. Because the jailer had said, you know what, I think you guys will be safer upstairs. Not in the jail cell, but up in my bedroom. So go upstairs, go to the jail cell, and they get up there and try to shut the door and it won't shut. So they spend the day trying to shave the edge of the door. And then again, the latch won't work either. Uh, so they spend the day uh, doing that. Uh, then, you're, then you recall that... Uh, then just after 5 o'clock, um, uh, John Taylor will look out of the side window that looks down on that, that south door. See the open door down there? He can look down and you can see the mob coming. 100 to 200 blackened faces and the are coming. Uh, and at that point, then they, the, the guards will shoot kind of over their head. There's some suspicion that they have lights. Fire over the top of their heads. Uh, they will push past those and they will charge up the stairs, come around the corner at that point, the brethren begin trying to hold the, the door shut. Uh, we know that, uh, again, uh, that in trying to hold it shut, uh, some of the, because they can't hold it shut, some of the rifle barrels are coming through and John Taylor, Will Richard are trying to knock the, the barrels up. Uh, so one of them is going to shoot through the door. If you've been to Carthage, you know that hole is there. They go through and strikes Hiram just to the left of his nose. He will fall immediately. I'm a dead man. Uh, when they see that happen, a couple of things happen. Joseph is distraught. You know, my brother Hiram. John Taylor is scared to death. So John Taylor runs across the room, tries to climb out of the window. Now, again, been in the, how many have been in that, that room? Okay. So you know, it's, it's not like a, you got to step up, you climb up to try and get to the window. Uh, John Taylor gets up there. He will take a couple of shots. One shot will hit him from behind. It will ram him up against the corner of the thing, shattering his watch. Then, uh, now that he's shot, he, he falls to the ground. He rolls across the floor underneath the bed. At that point, with the canes trying to knock it up, the brethren, the, the guys outside on the landing up there are now being able to shoot down. Uh, Hiram is now shot three more times, and, and John Taylor will take 
a couple of more shots, including the one that hits his hip and blows part of his hip away while he's lying underneath the bed. Joseph, we know at that point, and, and, and uh, Willard Richard just kind of been knocked out of the way. Joseph will then, some accounts say, Willard Richard said, calm Walks across to the open window there. Uh, again, it's a slide in, so we've got to kind of reach down and under. Uh, oh Lord, my God. He will then take shots from outside and in, and he will pitch forward. And Willard Richard says the last view that he has of him is his feet. You can see his feet disappearing through the pane and down. He will land uh, next to the pump house, just outside, where he will be shot again, and he will die there. Now, there's a, as the crowd was rushing, there was a lady that lived not too far away from uh, the jail. And she and they believed all along that the more, that the Nauvoo Legion was going to go crazy. And she sees the mob coming and she starts screaming, The Mormons are coming, the Mormons are coming. And so this cry is yet, the Mormons are coming. And as it turns out, the mob hears, the Mormons are coming. And they now rush back down the stairs and, and leave. Uh, now in that moment then, there are a couple of very poignant moments for me when I when I look at this. And I'm always aware when it is. Willard Richards comes out from all of this. He's seen Joseph pitch out there. Uh, Hiram is dead, uh, bleeding profusely. Uh, and he gets ready to try and hide or do something. And John Taylor calls out, don't leave me. So, and, and John Taylor's a large man. Willard Richards will have to pull him out from underneath the bed, around the body of Hiram out onto the landing. They will then hear, uh, John Taylor will hear the voice of Wilson Law just outside. And he's saying, don't leave me here, I can hear, I'm not willing to come out. So that's the moment at which Willard Richards will then drag him into the, into the, uh, that small cell. And it looks really big on the picture, doesn't it? Those of you who have been in there, it's a pretty small little space. Drag him inside that jail cell, turn the bed, the, the uh, straw bed, over on top of him to bury him. By the way, it also helps save his life because the straw helps staunch the blood, especially in his hip. Uh, he bled a lot, by the way. It wasn't that long ago that they did, when they were doing a little bit of a uh, rebuild in the, in the Carthage jail, that they took up the floorboards on that corner and found some of the wood joists underneath still soaked with John Hill. And so he'll leave him there, and then John Taylor will then walk back out onto the landing, expecting to die. Willard Richards, yes. Willard Richards, at that moment, he's watched everybody else. He shot and killed and stuff like that, and he's standing there expecting to die. Yeah, and we'll get to that when we get to section 135. Yeah. Right.
Smith the prophet and Hiram Smith the patriarch. Joseph Smith, prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. I think it's impossible for us to uh, picture what life was like in Nauvoo in that next week. The, um, when the bodies were brought back uh, and, and brought into the mansion house <coughs> and, and the bodies cleaned and the death masks were, were taken so we could come here, uh, it says that the city of Nauvoo just went into an incredible fight. You know, they were just and and so you just get that sense of loss that all of these of these people have. They just could not believe. He'd always escaped this time. Um, now, if we look at section one thirty-five. There's a couple of things I want to point out in the in the time remaining. And then something I think for us to maybe a little application for us to take a look. John Taylor and Willard Richards, two of the twelve, were the only persons in the room at the time. The former was wounded in a savage manner with four balls, but has since recovered. The latter, through the providence of God, escaped without even a hole in his robe. Now, this is where a tradition started that still kind of persists in the church today. Um, the four brethren in there had been to the temple. They had received their temple endowments and they had their temple garments. Except for the fact that on that day it was too hot. And, and Joseph and Hiram and John removed their garments because it was too hot. They were had to toe collared thing. The only one who didn't was Willard Richards. When it refers that he received not even a hole in his robe, that's what it's talking about. It was gone. Yes. There is that Joseph had promised him that he would be he would live through it, he would be in a hail of bullets and not and would not be harmed. The only thing he got was a little bit of a, a nick on his earlobe from one bullet. And there was a belief back in Nauvoo then, when they got back, that part of what saved him from physical harm was he was wearing his garments. And it's one of those things that kind of persists today, that we have this belief anecdotally that says if we're wearing our temple garments, then we're not going to be harmed. And we all have stories where they were burned and went right up to here and everything, but every day people died in the middle. And, and we have those stories. 
But in all likelihood, it's our own fault when, when anti-Mormons are poking fun of us in our own magic. Because again, we have those stories, and I don't doubt they're true, but on the same, the same time, people die every day with their garments on. And, and, we, and we forget the fact that the garment is, is more than anything, is a spiritual protection, not meant to be a physical barrier against physical. It is a spiritual barrier to sin. It's a spiritual barrier if we allow it against the power. Against the power of the destroyer. Spiritual. Not meant to be physical, but this is where that Okay, that said, uh, one last thing in before we before we conclude that I wanted to. Oh, let me just say this: they were innocent of any crime, as they had been proved before, and were only confined in jail by the conspiracy of traitors and wicked men, and their innocent blood on the floor of Carthage jail. That's why W. W. Phelps wrote "Praise to the Man" for the funeral. And they were singing this song as the funeral procession passed, as the, as, the, as the coffins were coming by. And what they were singing is, Praise to his memory he died as a martyr, honored and blessed be his ever great name. Long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, stay in Illinois while the earth wants us. Had mixed, yeah, there were Missourians, uh, Thomas Sharp, uh, Sheriff um, Watkins. Yeah, we know. Was, remember, we know. We know. What happened to the laws? The, the laws um, would actually go on and kind of be pulled in. The other, the other person that's not really showing up here yet is uh, uh, a man by the name of James Strange. James Strange will show up in March. He claims he's having visions. He's supposed to be the successor to Joseph Smith. He will have more visions. And, and right after the martyrdom, he will then lead a contingent of saints up to Wisconsin. The Strangeites. Uh, people will head up there. We will, they will also leave from winter quarters to Wisconsin. And will, William Law, for a while, will become his like first counselor or something like that. But kind of a mix. And Lady Hurley would just come back and be an attorney. Alright, so so for years up until nineteen seventy eight, the blood of Hiram was still on the floor in that room. And when the Nauvoo Restoration Committee was coming through and making changes, it was the decision of uh, uh, Leroy Kimball, who was heading up the Nauvoo Restoration Committee, that it was now trying to change that, and so he had the blood removed from the floor. And up to that point, the blood had always been there. Uh, in fact, in, uh, in 1900, just after 1900, Joseph F. Smith, on a, on a journey through, would actually stop and visit the Carthage Jail, and there was still blood all over the place. So it, it wasn't removed until 1970. 
We got an apology just prior to the building of the Nauvoo Temple in 2003. But if anybody, how many of you listened to the uh, to that dedication or to the? Okay, you remember? Remember President uh, Hinckley had a lot of words for for Governor Ford. A long message about everything that had happened to him and his kids and everything, and it was he was not kind. He was still angry about what had happened. I've rarely heard the president Hinckley ever like that. That said, talking about Governor Ford, he was pretty explicit about what had happened. Yeah, and no longer, it ceased to be a jail after a couple of years. I mean, it's kind of a spooky place now. So they actually sold it. That's why, if you've seen the pictures, you see the picture of how it was turned into just kind of a house. And then the church finally bought it in, I think, 1907, I think. And then restored it back uh, to, what it, to what it was. So I, I would I would take some of that as truth and some of that with a grain of salt. I, I really would. So I so I, I do think as you look at that, but we we tend to jump too much and we want all these guys to die horrible bleeding deaths. And as it turned out, Thomas Ford or Thomas Ford, uh, Thomas Sharp who organized the whole thing would be like the mayor of Warsaw three times and another possible life, the rest of his life. Yes. Well, and Carthage has never, and Carthage has never uh, taken off. So, so yeah, none of those never really prospered, but again, and even, even uh, when President Hinckley was dedicating all that, it was, this is now a time for reconciliation and it's time to let go of all, all of the anger and stuff. Yeah, I, th I think uh, vengeance is mine and the Lord will take care of it in, in His own way. And we don't know exactly how that will play out. But let me just, I know we're right up against it. Let me finish with one last thing and, and then we're out of here. Um, I just want you to, I want you to keep this in mind as kind of the button on, on all of this. The day before they left for Carthage, Hiram was reading in the Book of Mormon. There was a verse that touched him so much that he turned the page down so that the corner of it would touch that verse. Uh, Elder Holland has shown us that book in conference a couple of years ago. We still have it. The page is still turned down in there. And I think it's a good way to kind of finish this. Here's what, here's what that says. It's from Ether 12. And it came to pass that I prayed unto the Lord that He would give unto the Gentiles grace that they might have charity. And now I bid farewell unto the Gentiles and also my brethren whom I love until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ. And all men shall know that my garments are not, spot, not spotted with your blood. I think a good way for us to finish with this is, is that first line. 
I prayed unto the Lord that He might give unto the Gentiles grace that they might have charity. There is the order. When we are thinking about people that we need to forgive and we're having a hard time letting go of bitterness, if you feel like you've been betrayed by somebody and you're having a hard time letting that go. I know the first time I drove into Carthage, the first time I drove into Jackson County, I immediately got that catch. If we are hanging on to things, the Lord is saying, I will give you a gift. And it's the gift of grace. Grace is the true love of God. When you are filled with that love, you now have the capacity for charity. Charity that we can extend to those who do not deserve it. It's easy to forgive those who deserve it. But it's harder to forgive those that don't deserve our forgiveness. And the Savior understands that completely. That's why to be filled with His grace is to be filled with His children. And it's our job to forgive all men, even those that have hurt us. Even those that do I pray that we can do that as I have And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Have a good week.
That one I don't have an answer for. Yeah, probably. Good job. Yeah. Uh, there's a man named Wayne that plays in the small water restaurant. He said that he would find me to take a look at him. He's solo. Let's do it. Yeah. 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 Yeah.